Hi, I'm Tor, and I'm here to share secrets. Today, I'm sharing secrets with Jamie Burke of Outlier Ventures. This is actually part two of a two-part podcast that Jamie and I were able to record. In the first part, I came on his podcast, Founders of Web3. You can find that on Apple Podcasts and a bunch of other platforms. But this is part two, where I'm going to be interviewing Jamie about his experience as an investor. And as he's been developing his theses about the blockchain space, it's really fascinating how he's been able to leverage the expertise of founders, uh, and other investors in the space to, to really, I think, formulate some groundbreaking thoughts about decentralized finance, about NFTs. So we're going to get into all of that on this second part of our podcast together. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please check out the first part on Founders of Web3. But without any further introduction, may I present Jamie Burke. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on and agreeing to share some secrets with me. I'm thrilled to continue our conversation. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm not sure about sharing secrets, but let's see. I'm a pretty private person. Let's see what I can do. It's, it is my job to, uh, to extract secrets from guests, either about themselves or about the blockchain and Web3 space. And I know from following your work for a long time that you have learned quite a bit uh, in the space. And, and for those who are joining this episode, Without having listened to part one of our conversation, Jamie and I also recorded a, a separate episode for his uh, Founders of Web3 podcast. You should go check it out. We talk a lot more about Secret Network. This episode, I think we're going to focus a lot more on broader trends within the Web3 space and specifically how Outlier Ventures involves themselves with Web3 space, where they see it evolving. Jamie, I am really excited to get into some of this stuff if, if you're ready to go. Yeah, like I said, I'm a bit tentative. You know, I, I don't. I'm not sure about the secret sharing, but let's let's give it a shot. All right, let's see what we can do. Let's start with uh, something that isn't really a secret. Uh, who are you? Um, just for people who aren't as familiar, uh, what is your actual current role and function professionally? And then, uh, is that how you introduce yourself at parties? Yeah, exactly. No, I, I I tend to talk about NFTs now at parties. It's the only way I'm interesting, which is which is what, why why I do what I do. Um, so I am Jamie Burke. I am the founder of Outlier Ventures, um, which was established over seven years ago. We were Europe's first dedicated blockchain investor, and as the markets evolved, it looks of course very different now to before. I mean, you could. You could maybe call it an industry now, just about. Um, but as it's evolved, we as an organization have evolved with it. So in the very, very early days, I hired a co-founder CTO called Aaron Van Amers out of the Netherlands. And we decided, look, the space was very early. There weren't really many businesses to invest in or things that you could assess on the same kind of parameters you would assess as uh, an equivalent investment opportunity. So let's just build stuff. And so we, we started as a studio. Um, and the idea really was to get some applied learning. So by understanding the technology intimately, we would understand its limitations. And our kind of ambition as investors would be tempered as we understood the reality of what was possible. And we could get better at timing innovations. And, and when we met a really exciting startup that came along, we could really time that investment opportunity. Because as, as your listeners will probably know, 
one of the big tricks in investing is timing. You know, you can have you can be right, but you can be right too early, and um, that's a great way to lose a lot of money. So initially, we were the studio, and we played around with lots of different uh, themes that are starting to to only just happen in the market now in investments that we're looking at and investing in. We then migrated into becoming an incubator when there was a lot of focus on infrastructure, rightfully so. So I forget the year, but I did a blog post, which was deliberately provocative, which said uh, 99% of blockchain startups are bullshit. And that was after speaking to 1,000 of them who were largely promising to build at the application layer, but in the old paradigm, you know, they were trying to build classic centralized businesses with a bit of blockchain on it. And often the blockchain, the blockchain technology that was available then wouldn't even support that use case. And so at that point, we decided, look, we are only going to invest in infrastructure because we just felt that there needed to be the stack um, with various tooling to make possible these use cases at scale. And of course, you know, you could still argue we're we're only just there. You know, still there are several use cases that are just not economically viable on things like Ethereum, at least on uh, ETH one. And but nevertheless, that the the stack has matured. You're starting to see some you know foundational primitives such as secret network um, focusing on privacy, your standards in terms of identity, um, and and so as we began to work at the infrastructure layer, we created a thesis, which was, which we call the convergence thesis. And that was effectively the, the, the thing that was most interesting to us about blockchain was looking at it in, in the context of data and the data economy. And so when we started to look at blockchains as a means of organizing and commodifying data, and effectively turning it into enabling data marketplaces and the provenance of data and all these kind of good good things, we realized that you really couldn't look at blockchain in isolation. You had to look at it in, in how it would combine with other technologies in the context of the, the data economy. So IoT and effectively the production of data, whether it's a mobile device or some kind of industrial use case. Um, blockchains being the way that you would kind of transport and organize that data. Um, and then, of course, at the top, machine learning and AI, which is ultimately the things that are consuming this data increasingly so. So the, the Convergence thesis laid out a stack of technologies going from uh, IoT all the way up to AI and, and try to figure out how does this stuff interplay. And it was that thesis that we refined over a long period and it led us to work with a number of protocols, you know, yourselves, Enigma included. Because of course, what's interesting about the data economy in the context of Web3 is user centricity and user control, primarily of data. Um, but of course, when data can be transformed into digital assets then then that that context expands so so that became i'd say the lion's share of our time and focus and we worked with several protocols in the very early days with iota because they were you know taking a new approach to applying dags for scalability around iot and iot data we worked with uh, Fetch.ai, which was some of the early DeepMind team that were looking at, well, how could we have, how could we allow for greater 
uh, orders of magnitude of logic to happen on chain and of course in, interoperate with logic off chain um and of course that's straight into the area of a, an enigma then around uh, you know privacy preserving computation and stuff like that so um it was only recently in the last year or so so we're coming towards the end of 2020 now um so probably a year and a half ago we decided okay look it looks like that stack's matured now billions of dollars have gone into building out infrastructure we don't think there needs to be much more infrastructure there's certainly some primitives that are missing around identity and and other things but on the whole the stack's there it's really now about making it usable scalable and and so that's when we condensed what we were doing into an accelerator format focus much more at the middleware and application layer so now we work with middleware companies businesses um, looking to make all of this stuff usable and then at the application layer you know classic entrepreneurs that are looking to take this and apply it into a particular domain now across those it is still a mixture of equity-based businesses and these kind of token optimized networks but that kind of whole journey really is given as a um a pretty deep understanding of the Web3 stack, understanding new and emergent business models. And now we're at the scale where we work with 30 startups a year across three cohorts of 10. And we're now currently actively recruiting for our fourth cohort, the winter cohort. Oh, my Lord. Well, uh, there is so much to unpack there because uh, you may not think that you're sharing secrets, but my friend, I, I can tell you that for a lot of people listening who don't have as broad or as deep a perspective on the space as, as you have just shared, a lot of this sounds like like the key secrets to success in the blockchain space. Like you, you've dropped a few very, I, I think, as you said, like maybe these are more contentious statements. 99% of block, blockchain projects are bullshit. Uh, layer one, like all, all the foundational primitives with a few aside are, are already there. Like we can go into like why some of these may or may not be true, but let's start with maybe an interesting question. I, I'm curious about times when you've kind of disagreed with your past self, because clearly it's been a long journey for you guys. You guys are very well established in the space now. You must have changed your mind about a hundred things from from where you started to where you are now. What do you think is the biggest belief that you held, let's say in 2017, during the last big bull run, 2017 only, I know you've been active for longer than that, but in the last three years, what's something that you really believed that you now think you were pretty much wrong about? Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one because I'm, I'm wrong about so many things and not, not necessarily wrong because the logic doesn't hold. But as I said, there's often a, a timing thing. And I also think there's just such high degree of complexity. You know, we were just talking earlier about convergence and how um, these technologies are going to combine and interact in, in certain ways, perhaps accelerate. Um, you've then got the world of tokenized governance and you know, things like DAOs. And to be honest with you, most of these subjects are well above my pay grade. Like if, if you if you were to do what I just did to you on the podcast, which is to walk through your your background and, you know, this neat pathway appears that kind of presents, well, this seems logical that he did this and then he did that. I'm grossly 
unqualified or at least underqualified, uh, un, um, undereducated to be talking about any of these things. So, like, honestly, my job is to find brilliant people like you and enable them, contextualize them. And so what I've found I'm good at and what I'm not good at. So what I'm good at, and I don't know why it's not something that I, to be honest with you, try too hard to do. Um, but I, I kind of see patterns or, or shapes emerge and they're very blurred. Um, but I can generally see just because I'm inquisitive enough uh, and I make an effort to speak to smart people that I can start to make sense of the shape of something without really fully understanding it or understanding its detail. And that's why I have the team that I have at Outlier, which allow me to then kind of fill in the blanks and, and to add detail. But I would also say, um, as you just witnessed uh, earlier this week, as I'm kind of trying to draft a thesis around what could DeFi 2.0 look like? I'm also increasingly reliant on our portfolios. We have a portfolio of over 30 startups now, which, to be honest with you, are some of the best analysts I could hire. And I don't even have to pay them, right? I, I just kind of just ask you guys, hey, you know, what what do you think of something like this? And so I, I've got this ridiculous brain trust that I can tap into. And so increasingly, I, I'm just a spokesperson. So long way of answering. Let me kind of circle back to, to the question about what I got right and wrong. So um so just before just before the top um of everything that was going on in ICOs, I believe it was the second week of January, it must have been 2018. I called the top and said there's gonna be a big correction. I can't remember the exact number, I think whatever the number was, I got talked down by my board to reduce it because it might be too alarmist at the time to, to, to the market. But I think I said like, you know, 70% heck on the market. Um, and I think it was closer to like 90. But but it, it was obvious to, I think, a lot of people that what was happening with ICOs, while brilliant, to be honest with you, I mean, I, I still don't see a problem with it, right? That was just a market trying to allocate capital to something that it knew would be transformative, but it couldn't price. Um, now you can argue, well, should consumers be allowed in? That's quite a political conversation, at least a subjective one. It depends where you sit in the world um, and, and what you believe in terms of access to, to, to these kind of markets. But on the whole, a lot of good stuff got built. It's messy, but as I said, we've now got this stack. We've got the the beginnings of, um, of the building blocks. So, but like through through this whole time, you know, we then had winter and you could argue we kind of came out of winter a little bit only just at the beginning part of this year. Um, and it, with the emergence of DeFi, and you could argue maybe we've gone back into winter, I, I don't know, at least it's kind of plateaued, DeFi 1.0. Um, I'll be honest with you, you know, whilst I have a lot of conviction for the space, you know, I, I kind of saw it very, very early on and I'm still here. Um, you can't help but doubt some of your assumptions. So when, when the 2017 correction happened, even though we all knew it was going to happen and I even kind of predicted it to a degree, when you then go into the depths of winter and everybody loses their nerve and you know your, your business gets impacted you can't help but to question well 
are, are tokens ever going to be a thing? Like I, I strongly and still strongly believe that token optimized decentralized networks will outcompete untokenized networks. I believe that tokens allow for open source to have a business model. Like these are highly transformative things. If you think about all the technology that got open source during 2017, even if it died a death, that an individual project died to death, like none of that would have been open source. It would have all been proprietary. And so that's why I kind of always keep this faith. But, you know, it was only really until 2018, beginning part of 2018, we had a lot of debates internally. Should we transition our accelerator to an equity-based model? And we did actually, we emphasized much more equity. Anybody that was doing a token, we just said, look, build build a business first. And then, you know, when the time's right, when the market's right, maybe we can look at open sourcing part of it and leveraging a token. But, you know, you, you do lose your nerve. So I wouldn't say I've been wrong on the big stuff, like directionally, I kind of get that right. And to be honest with you, on, on the detailed stuff, I usually outsource that to people smarter than me. So it's normally them that are wrong, not me. <laughs> <laughs> what a great hedge. Uh, but I but I completely understand. And it, and it is the right approach, right? Obviously, nobody can see every piece of the puzzle at all times. I, I think it's actually very helpful that as a space, not just as a collection of portfolio companies, but as a collection of founders and builders and, and so on, like it is a very collaborative, even though it doesn't always seem that way, it is a very collaborative ecosystem. Maybe it's the open source nature. Maybe it's the fact that we all feel we're sort of on this insane rocket ship together. Uh, you know, like you can be right about the large trends. In fact, I think anybody working in the cryptocurrency space has intuitively been right about all of the large trends, including Absolutely. like the the, de the debasement of fiat money, if, if you're more focused on like the digital gold narrative. But also like, I'm pretty sure we've been right about like what's been happening on the data side. And I, I, I think that, you know, there are some global trends that we've recognized happening in the in the real world, quote unquote that are finally starting to rear their head after years. Like I would say nobody really cared about privacy from 2017 to maybe most of the way through 2020. I have seen a distinct shift in the attitudes towards privacy, mostly because of the emergence of DeFi applications. As you're saying, DeFi 1.0, we don't really necessarily recognize what the key problems are until we run into them building at the next layer down of complexity. So we solve some problems first, we experiment in the wild, we overshoot. And then as we discover new problems, we correct. And as we solve those problems, we we overshoot again. Everything is going to move in cycles. And you all you've done really is predict which cycles were going to happen and what the magnitude of those cycles might look like and how you should adjust your business as a result. I would say the most interesting thing you just talked about there is you recognize that these cycles would play out over years and you knew that adjustments would have to be made to your own business in order to respond to those cycles. And I think that that's extremely commendable is to see how this the cycles, even though there's so much unknowable, even though the composability creates complexity, you knew that this was going to impact your business and outliers business. So, well, I just, I just, I just want to kind of pick up on a point, actually, because you, you make a really good one and it comes back to this timing point. So I, I'm it makes me really happy to see projects like Secret 
and Ocean Protocol and you know projects that have have shared this vision around data and a data economy now starting to be recognized and acknowledged. And as you say, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but it's because um, only when you start to deploy Web3 into certain use cases, you realize, oh, well, wait a minute, we, we need to we need to go back and fix issues around data privacy and and all, all these kind of things. So, you know, that that that's kind of really good to see start happening and, and play out. But of course, you know, when we were talking about this stuff, we didn't necessarily have the support of other investors because certainly what I found, and, and this is even more true as an accelerator, um, you, you start to see that there is a big kind of herd mentality in venture. And, you know, there's always a new theme and that's what everybody wants to go into. And if you are investing in something, if your thesis is about another theme, um, it doesn't mean people disagree with it, but they'll say, yeah, that's interesting, but, you know, it's not where the herd's moving. Um, And they'll kind of maybe push it back a few years. And so actually, if I think about your first question about where I got it wrong, I probably got the timing wrong on the data economy, that it would only be now that I think the world would start appreciating projects like Secret. That said, it wasn't too far off because you guys are still alive. You're still here. um, And, you know, you're kind of still kicking. And I think, you know, actually, when you talk about the, I, I wouldn't take too much praise for getting the directional stuff right, because the benefit of being an accelerator is that you speak to lots and lots of very early startups. So it should be natural. Like I wouldn't be doing a good job of running an accelerator if I didn't have at least a 12 to 18 month like head start on the market. So so this year we'll speak to a thousand startups for um, the last um, cohort application for our accelerator in the summer, I think we had you know, close to 300 applicants. These are all pre-seed startups, some seed stage, like very early. Sometimes it's teams with a concept. Sometimes it's people with an MVP. Um, most will die, you know, a, a painful death before the year's even over. But what you start to see is you get loads of data points. Um, and so all you've got to do is synthesize that. The, the trick in being an accelerator is actually marrying what's coming at you with what your co-investor network want to invest in. Um, because there's no good as accelerating a startup that nobody else wants to invest in in you know, four or five months. That's the trick. It looks like we're, we're kind of getting it right. All the projects that go through the accelerator pretty much closed the, the first seed round. But that is, that is newer because previously when we were incubating, we just do what we thought was right. And we'd say, well, it'll, it'll turn out in two, three, four, five years. Now as an accelerator, we've really got to make sure the gap between like what we think is going to happen and, and when it starts happening and other people invest has to be much shorter. Yeah. And the good news is I was about to ask you about the accelerator and you answered the question that I was about yeah. to ask you anyway. So there's I not- just there- waited. No, no, no. You you actually, before you got to that answer, you answered something even more important. I agree. You actually answered my last question. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> so, 
so that's fine. Uh, but now, now I'm excited to move to the last part of, of our conversation. I know, again, we've got a condensed conversation here as well, but you've talked about, okay, here was outliers vision and thesis. Here's how it's evolved. Here's how the accelerators work. We've even talked a little bit about some of these needs at the middleware level, but I've had Jake Bruckman on the podcast. I've had RAC on the podcast. We've finally started to get into something that I also share a passion with you about, which is this NFT use case. And I'm so excited to have the opportunity to talk with you about it because I think you'll have an even different perspective than they do. And for, for people listening who aren't as familiar, you should go listen to those episodes that I just referenced uh, because Jake and RAC have incredible perspectives as creators and as investors and builders. Um, so Jamie, I'm interested in yours. An NFT is a non-fungible token. It just means that it's not exchangeable with uh, something else it can represent, as as Jay kind of referenced, like it can represent an experience. He called it kind of like cookies for the real world, you know, or as RIC was saying, for artists, it can represent some claim on their work or right to their work in addition to representing the work itself. So there's so many things it could be. I'm curious, maybe we can start this conversation about NFTs specifically by asking you, how would you define an NFT? And maybe in that definition, you can communicate what you're most excited, what use case you're most excited about for this fundamental piece of technology that's enabled by blockchain and Web3. Yeah, so this is this is one of the topics that's got me most excited right now. So the, the best I can do is, the best description I heard was from Roham of Dapper Labs, founder, co-founder of Dapper Labs. You know, so he said, look, Almost everything in your life is non-fungible. Like there are very few things that are actually fungible. Um, currency is one of them and potentially some commodities like oil. Like you, you don't care which dollar you have in your hand. You don't care what gallon of oil you have in your car. It's interchangeable. Um, m- most everything else is actually non-fungible. You know, you you would care, and, and this goes to your friends. You know, like you, one one friend is not so easily interchangeable with another, as much as we might like that to be so. Um, you know, down to your home and, and and various other things. So, in the context of non fungible tokens, the the spectrum of use case is ridiculously broad. It's almost limitless. So then the question becomes: Well, what is most likely, or should be? turned into a non-fungible token first. And so I, I think the reality of, of non-fungible tokens are really born out of the Ethereum community, um, I guess, like DeFi itself, and the kind of creative quarter of, of the Ethereum community, which has kind of always been there. It's always always been present. And so for me, currently, if you look at implementations of nfts that are gaining traction um they also feel pretty obvious right so the problem with crypto has been that most people on the planet don't understand or care about the things that were fungible like currency they don't care about understanding currency generally let alone cryptocurrency um so it's just inaccessible. They're never going to go to Binance. They're never going to go and buy ETH or any other cryptocurrency. And to be honest with you, they probably shouldn't. Um, but the things that they do get are when you start talking about creating things, a digital good um, that is unique and that can hold its value on the internet. Because if you think about what the internet broke, it was that as soon as anything became digital, 
Um, it could be copied innumerable times, shared innumerable times. Um, and then effectively, if you were a creator, for example, um, whether it's a movie or a music file, then effectively, that, as soon as that hits the internet, you've lost all control. You've lost all, all control and all right to you know, receive and be re rewarded for your creation. Um, and so what NFTs do is it allows creators to take back control um, and to program rules about you know, how, how this thing can exist in, in the economy and how it can be shared and, and how value associated to it could be distributed. So in a basic form, it could be royalties, you know. Um, so the use cases that we're, we're seeing come through are things that are easy for the average person to get. So, you know, collectibles, trading cards, um, Increasingly, artwork, digital artwork, and artwork I use in a very broad term. We're starting to see everything from pretty crude, self-referential crypto art, all the way through to you know rich multimedia, you know, video, um, motion graphics, audio collaborations between artists that are then you know manifest into this digital asset, this digital good. Um, are minted on a blockchain um, where they can then be shared openly in, in these secondary markets. But rules can be built into those. They're not so much happening at the moment, but in theory, you could say on every sale, the creator gets um, you know 10% of any future sale. Or you could even limit the price that it could ever be sold at. And that could be relevant if it's a ticket, for example. So you, you can start to look at these things as digital goods, um, but also digital experiences or digital services. So on the one hand, it could be a collectible. It could be a piece of digital fine art. Digital fine art is the use case that's taking off the most just because of the economic constraints of Ethereum itself. You, you want high value goods and assets with kind of low turnover of, of transaction. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the other end of the experience, you can start to say, okay, well, where could these digital goods be consumed or experienced? As I said, they could be a multimedia asset that you might want to experience in a social context. And so you might mint a certain amount for a certain amount of people, you know, your, your kind of fan base. Um, it could even be uh, an NFT as a ticket into a virtual or real world physical experience obviously not much physical stuff happening at the moment as we uh, kind of accelerate our move to the metaverse but the idea is yeah can i consume a digital good in a virtual environment well then it becomes a digital experience um, and how, how do i then want to program the rules of that digital experience that virtual experience and so you know for me it, they become kind of the economic unit for the metaverse I, I love everything that you said. And if we had another seven hours or so, I would love to go into each of these visions in turn and think through like what the optimal platform would look like. I think we have to leave ourselves wanting, but I want to close with a question because I, I am so excited, as I know you are, about the future of this space, about all of its potential. And as founders and as builders and investors, I think we also have a responsibility to say, if we're wrong, if something went wrong and something else happened, something that we don't want to be the outcome, like how did it happen? And I'll give an example. So I don't want DeFi to stay an insane casino. And equally, I don't want PayPal to come in 
and try to claim to the entire world that they're DeFi and have everybody believe it. And I don't want Facebook and Libra to become the world's default payment processor. But you can easily see how things can go wrong and we end up there because they already have massive user bases and massive reach. We're building this tiny, tiny little island and we're desperate for it to be relevant and to create a path forward. But it can just as easily be hijacked. People can wait until it's achieved some basic traction, then come in and use some of their influence in the legacy world to move the path down where they want it to go. So in the context, I guess, of NFTs more so and the metaverse more so rather than DeFi, and we should talk about this another time, but I firmly believe that the value of NFTs is, as you're saying, giving control back to creators and consumers, taking out the middlemen in these relationships between artists and audience and creating these massive open worlds where you can create these virtual assets and exchange them and display them. And these are open worlds, permissionless worlds. What could go wrong? What would have to, what would you see that would make you really nervous right now that we all have to be vigilant for now as a community to be able to say, this is not the path we want to go down. This is going to take us away from the vision of these open worlds and these, and these more direct relationships between creators and consumers. What do we have to be careful of just so we all know what to look for? So we all end up where we really want to go. Yeah. So, I mean, I think if you look historically at you know, the cycles and information technologies, you, you see this bundling and unbundling. Um, and there's a great book on it called The Master Switch. And if you haven't read it, you, you, you really should. Um, so the question is, how do we avoid the same bundling, i.e., as we saw with Web 2, you know, Web 1 turned into Web 2, which was effectively bundling into platforms um, that we now kind of refer to as surveillance capitalism. So how do we avoid that in Web 3? And for me, if I were to say one thing, it is about how do we preserve this user centricity in, in Web3 that becomes just part of the DNA of Web3. So it doesn't mean that we might not have some centralized parties, just like we have centralized exchanges um, versus decentralized exchanges. Like some people, some points of crypto or the metaverse will require um, these centralized parties as bridges into in and out of the, the world proper and this emergent metaverse or, or, or Web3. I think the things that are missing right now that can preserve user centricity are primarily around identity. There is still no um, universal decentralized identity solution for the internet. And without that, ultimately, you are reliant at some point for a trust broker, somebody to broker uh, a transaction or an exchange where there is uh, where trust is missing, um, and it's there where you kind of have capture. And so this is why I'm most interested in trying to understand how can we address that identity problem. Because as you say, what's really exciting about Web three, and in particular in the context of NFTs, are we are going to witness an experiment, an economic experiment in all the possible variants of business models that could happen in the creative industry in a permissionless environment. Just like we did with crypto and just like we did with DeFi, we're going to see that with creative industries. Um, and who the hell knows where that's going to settle. But I think the way you avoid capture is to enshrine hard code, the preservation of the identity of the individual, and of course, privacy is part of that, 
in order that you ensure that the metaverse is open. And so we're also really big adv advocates of an open metaverse. And that ultimately means that there is portability, portability of identity, portability of assets, portability of data um, between platforms. It doesn't mean platforms won't exist, but what it means is you can exit that platform, you can take everything with you, um, and we then avoid the capture that we kind of see playing out in Web2 right now. Great. Uh, you've taken my question about the threats, and I think you've turned it into something so much more positive, which is if we want to avoid the threat of, of seeing this all be for naught, to see things end up overly centralized again, in, instead of like what we've been seeing with this progression from centralized exchanges to decentralized exchanges, which has been so tremendously exciting, it's because we were able to do that because of all of this technological innovation that people have kept heads down on for the last few years before we even knew we were going to need it. And now it's been so necessary in the wake of what's been happening with, you know, BitMEX or or whatever or OKX or any of these other exchanges. So it's so exciting uh, to hear you focus on, again, let's build the right solutions, let's build the right alternatives. And that way, if there are future threats, we've already built the alternatives, we've already built portability, and we've built robust identity solutions that are also, you know, protecting user privacy, doing all the things that we know are going to be so critical to the growth of Web3. I think it's such a great and optimistic place to close part two of this two-part episode. I don't want to say there won't be a part three, part four, part 10. <laughs> let's, let's at least close here to say, uh, Jamie, it's been so exciting to have both of these opportunities with you. Uh, you're welcome on any time, of course, but is there anything else that you want to shill in the closing minutes here uh, for where people can learn more about you or Outlier or the Accelerator? A any other call to action you want people to be able to follow up on? I'm sure they'd be happy to hear about it. Yeah, awesome. Well, look, firstly, thanks for, um, thanks for interviewing me. It's great to be able to have a little bit more room and space to kind of share, share my thoughts. And thanks for coming on the show. Uh, and my show is great to kind of hear you go a little bit deeper into the importance of privacy. You say privacy, I say privacy. Let's call the whole thing off. Uh, so uh, you can get in touch by following me on Twitter at Jamie247, the numbers. But more importantly, we are in the middle of closing our recruitment process for cohort four for Accelerator, our winter Accelerator Basecamp. You can find out more about that at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We've got rolling recruitment. It's just that this particular program uh, will stop taking submissions in two weeks' time. If you are a startup working in either the data economy on many of the topics that we discussed on either episode, NFTs uh, and or DeFi, uh, and your early stage, please get in touch. Amazing. Uh, please get in touch. If you're building anything at all, Jamie, the Outlier team have been excellent resources for our ecosystem. They'll be an excellent resource for you. Jamie, until next time, thank you for sharing some incredible secrets, whether you think you did or not. I think people <laughs> are going to learn a lot from being able to listen to you. So thank you again. And until we do it again. Great. Thanks, Tor. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, and make sure to check out all the Secret Network communities that you can see here, including the Secret Chat, the Secret Forum, and of course our Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you the next time we share secrets.